Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and the producer of our dope theme music. So back in February, I went out one night to the tiny, legendary Cherry Lane Theater in the West Village here in New York to see a one-man show called Just For Us by a young comedian named Alex Edelman. Edelman's show had opened in the fall, gotten a nice blurb in The New Yorker, and then shut down for a month or so due to December Omicron surge, and had just reopened to a very nice critics pick review in The New York Times, and an Instagram post from Sarah Jessica Parker to her 8 million followers, calling just for us, quote, special, 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 a surprise, a revelation, and a gift to everyone in the audience, unquote. The SJP tweet had ginned up a lot of buzz and goosed ticket sales and kicked off what would soon turn into a veritable conga line of comedy royalty showing up to check out Just For Us. That night, Hassan Minaj was in the house, followed soon thereafter by the likes of Jerry Seinfeld, Billy Crystal, and Steve Martin. Just For Us is a combination of stand-up and storytelling in which Edelman uncorks an extended, riffy, acutely observed yarn about the night he decided to crash a meeting of white nationalists in Queens without fully comprehending that a Jewish person, like himself, might not be entirely welcome there. The show was filled with what Alex called dumb jokes that were anything but and hilarious autobiographical digressions all in the service of a raft of themes that were topical and deeply, if not explicitly, political and dead serious. Judaism, anti-Semitism, race, class, and more broadly, the question of identity in American culture. Though it reminded me at certain moments of the work of Spalding Gray, the great monologuist who gave the world swimming to Cambodia, Just For Us was much funnier than that, and the comic it really called to mind was the great Mike Birbiglia, who, it just so happened, was the producer of Just For Us, both a bit of a hero and a mentor to Alex, as he explained to me after the show. Less than a week later, I was back at the Cherry Lane again, this time to see, yeah, you guessed it, Mike Birbiglia. is there doing a late show after Alex's, a tour de force solo performance entitled The Old Man in the Pool, His New Thing, which is now on its way to Steppenwolf in Chicago, opening on April 28th, then to Europe, then to the Mark Taper Forum in LA this summer, and eventually, inevitably, to Broadway. Birbiglia's show, like pretty much everything he touches, was brilliant. And talking with him and Alex afterwards about their collaboration and aspirations, their influences and their respective processes, it occurred to me that it'd be pretty cool if we could get them together on the podcast to talk about all of it. Happily, they agreed. And, well, here they are. When you have a brush with death, you just go like, nothing matters. Like, you think you're keeping secrets? You're not. I feel like that's the thing, the biggest thing about being a secret teller on stage is people laugh in the audience and their laughter is basically saying, oh yeah, 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 I've had that. So often people are resistant to telling deep personal secrets that they feel about themselves that actually like that's sort of the only part that's interesting. For a stand-up comic, you're trained by audiences and other comedians to be like laughs buddy just go out there and get laughs and there is a bit of like that guy's great it can't get laughs like you need to get laughs you have to untrain yourself slightly to realize that there are things that are as important as the Hmm. laughs and so every couple of months adam and i sit down and we trim off jokes that are getting laughs 
but they're just not worth the momentum that you're losing as you move through the show. For anyone out there who doesn't already know, Mike Birbiglia is a comedian, storyteller, director, and actor of the widely acclaimed one-man shows Sleepwalk With Me, which he turned into a feature film and a New York Times bestselling book, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend, and Thank God for Jokes, both of which became Netflix specials, and most recently, The New One, which ran for three months on Broadway, won a Drama Desk and an Outer Critics Circle Award, became the basis for another New York Times bestseller and another Netflix special. Mike played the role of Danny Pearson on Orange is the New Black, for which he won an Emmy, and has appeared on Inside Amy Schumer and Girls and Broad City, and, of course, my favorite, Billions on Showtime, as well as in the films Trainwreck, The Fault is in Our Stars, Pop Star, and the forthcoming A Man Called Otto, opposite Tom Hanks. You may also know Berbiglia from This American Life or The Moth on public radio. Alex Edelman's credits are more modest, but given his talent and the heat around him right now, they won't be that way for much longer. After graduating from NYU in 2012, Edelman joined the Upright Citizens Brigade and then began performing in the UK while studying abroad. In 2014, his show Millennial got him named the best newcomer at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, where four years later, an early version of Just For Us was nominated for Best Show. The current version after leaving the Cherry Lane, is winding up a sold-out run at the Soho Playhouse at the end of April. But we'll return this summer for another six weeks at the Greenwich House Theater in New York. Tickets are going fast, and not surprisingly, given Alex's recent turns on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and Late Night with Seth Meyers and all of that buzz. The kid, as they say, is having a moment, and no one is more delighted to see it than Mike Birbiglia and me. The conversation the three of us had for the podcast took place live in person in New York City in the Recounts headquarters. So you may hear a little office noise now and then in the podcast. But I'll tell you, the conversation was also a sheer delight as we covered everything from Edelman's decision to focus just for us on his Jewish identity, which has long been central to his sense of self, but not to his comedy. The arc of Berbiglia's career from stand-up to storytelling and the personal experiences that have inspired him to make himself vulnerable on stage take emotional risks, and why, even for two comics who are readily able to land joke after joke that absolutely kill, comedy, in the end, is about more than making people laugh. It's about revealing something risky or uncomfortable and true about yourself and your life in order to let your audience feel better about themselves and theirs. It's about helping them, in other words, to get through their own personal hell and high water. Jewish and not Jewish. And, like, sometimes I meet Christians. And no, 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 no. Sometimes I meet Christians and they're like, well, I used to be a Christian, but I'm not anymore. And I don't say anything, but it blows my mind. Because, like, that's not, you guys know, that's not how it works in Judaism. is the Hotel California of It's a mailing list you can never unsubscribe from. Alex, that's true. I felt like if we were going to start talking about your humor and your show, we might want to play something that had to do with Jewish identity. Your Jewish identity, yeah. It's so tough because, like, it's so invested in my personhood. Yeah. It's invested in every aspect of my life, my Judaism. But I don't want to just be like, I'm sure this is going to come out in a way that's less eloquent than I want. I don't want to just be like the Jew 
for people. And it's frustrating because like I see myself sort of in that way. Yeah. And also like because of the way things work between skilled performers and their audiences, audiences respond to what is resonant with a performer. So it's this weird tension between really wanting to lean into my Judaism, but not wanting to sort of like put myself in a box or limit myself as a Jew. But when it comes down to it, like when it comes down to brass tacks, like I am very much a Jew. Well, sure. But I would be able to look back when I looked at your comedy prior to the show and Judaism was not like I mean, I'm not saying it was wholly absent. Sure. It wasn't no. the central thing. And this show really revolves around it. I want you to talk about what the show's about for people who haven't seen sure. it. But how did you get to that place where it was like, okay, I'm going to go all in on that? Judaism had always been an aspect of every show that I'd done. There had always been bits and pieces about my Judaism, my Jewish identity. This show had that. And it had a little bit more than my previous two solo shows. But Mike saw it and he was like, that's the good stuff. Like, I really experienced craftsman like a really great comic is able to look at a piece and go well that's the part he cares about and so mike saw past all the bs and encouraged me to strip out all the bs and sort of beef up the parts that were a little more resonant and then the show became sort of what it is because of me responding to that remit it's actually still taking a moment to be at peace with that decision to sort of lean into because people are like, well, you're leaning into your Judaism. And sometimes they see reviews of the show and they're actually reviewing who I am as a Jew, <laughs> especially a Jewish paper will be sure. like, well, well, he's this kind of Jew, but it'd be great if he was this kind of Jew. Very similar with when I did the show, The New One, when right. my last show was called The New One. And people sometimes would criticize me as a dad. Yes. And it's about being a dad, but it's like, you're criticizing me for the thing I'm criticizing myself for? Yeah. Like, what is happening? First, just say this. If you had to give 30 seconds of what the show would just about us. The 30 seconds, the, yes. it, the show revolves largely around this moment at the end of 2017, uh, beginning of 2018, where I went down this wormhole of anti-Semites on Twitter. And the sort of main event of the show is I went to this get together of white nationalists in Queens and like about an hour and a half in one of them was like sorry but this guy's a Jew and I'm like yeah I'm a Jew and that's like that's, <laughs> the, you know, that's the show that's, that's, the the greatest, that's one of the best log lines for a show I've ever heard spoiler, spoiler alert and, yeah. and so it's a show about anti-Semitism mm -hmm. and a show about Judaism I mean obviously there are two sides of the same coin but it, it's both of those things it's also acquired a little bit of topicality because, you know, I've been doing the show in various forms. I've been working on it since 2018. The yeah. show is ultimately about this gray space that Jews find themselves in between the very American binary of white and non-white. And so how whiteness for Jews is conditional, whiteness for Jews is sort of in the eye of the beholder. And so by putting myself in this very extreme setting, removing my Jewish identity from his natural habitat almost as far as it could possibly be removed, like, there is a conversation about Jews and whiteness that I think is part of the reason that people are responding to it right now in this moment. So you started working on it in 2018. It's 2022 now, and the show really, mm -hmm. people like learned about it at the end of 2021. So when did you first see it? Because he did it in Edinburgh. He did it in some other foreign country. Like, he was out working on this thing for a couple of years before. I had seen a bunch of Mike's stand-up and movies over the years. I'd gone to a couple of screenings. And I got invited to the new one by your social media team. And then I went to go see the new one again in Los Angeles. And afterwards, Mike's like, I hear you have the solo show. That's pretty good. I said, oh, yeah, it's, a, it's an old show. And Mike laughed. And he was like, no, it's the one you should be doing yeah. now. In fairness, he explained what it was. So now what you know, what's it about? And he said the logline he just said right now. And I go, no, 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 that's your next show. Yeah. I go, that's not your old show. No one's heard of your old show. Yeah. The next show is the one that people are going to hear about, and it's this. Yeah. 
I actually believe in the sort of Steven Spielberg concept, which is great movies, great anything, pitch it in 25 words. And if you can't, you probably don't have a movie. And I really believe in that. Yeah. His pitch, I was like, yeah, I get it. If I knew yeah. I was pitching, it would have been a four-minute pitch yes. and it would have sucked. So yes. I just was trying to explain to a guy that I admire that, that I had this show that I had been it doing. It doesn't, doesn't matter. You're still able to do it in 30 seconds, which means it was, that there was I, something there. Uh, but yeah. I pitch it all the time as the producer. They call it, I think, the elevator pitch. The elevator doors are closing. You have to go, <laughs> da, 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 da. and it always gets people to go. So when he said it to me, I'm like, Oh, okay, I have to see that. He goes, I'll send you a tape. I go, I'm not going to watch a tape of a theater performance. I right. just can't do that. It's like, I want to see it. How about I put it up for a night in New York and we see what happens? <laughs> I'll produce it for a night. Yeah. And I thought, if this, <laughs> like I said before, Passover is coming up. Do you know the word Dayenu? Is this the Jewish phrase? It would have been enough. So, like, I thought to myself, like, if just my Birbiglia puts it up for one night at the Lortel, where I've seen like amazing shows, Dianu, like, it would be enough. Yes. They put it up for a night in January. The Lucille Hotel Theater, and right before everything shut down. In 20. And by the way, it was like one of the best shows I'd, I'd had because I invited everyone I'd ever run into in New York City. So it was a very friendly crowd, and it went really well. Mike was like, the show is sort of like a B B plus, and I was like. In the back of my mind, it was like, that's the best I've ever done. <laughs> the reason I was able to even put that show up for a night was I was producing Jacqueline Novak's show, Get On Your Knees, at the Lucille Hotel Theater in that time, which was a wildly successful yeah. show. It was really brilliant. show she did that's going to be a special. And so my sense when I saw his show was that it was sort of where Jacqueline's show was like a year before it was off-Broadway. Mike? Let me ask you a question that a normal person would ask. Sure. Right? Why do you give a fuck? Like, what is it about this particular creative community? <laughs> Don't where... ask him this, Chuck, because I'm afraid he's going to be like, you know what? You're right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's because you looked at it and said, I want to be part of this because it could be great and I want to make something great in the world. I want to do this because I want to help this young guy get to be better, like a sense of collegiality, a sense of like, what's the impulse that drives an older and more successful comedian to work in this way with a younger one? So my sense with... Both Jacqueline Novak's show, Get On Your Knees, and Alex Edelman's show, Just For Us, was here are these two really smart young comics doing innovative things. They're telling stories. There's no tropes in what they're doing. It's very creative. They're revealing themselves. And my sense as a comic is like, yeah, let's try to get that out there. And in an artistic sense, I'm driven by, like, I want things to exist that I like. And so if they don't exist, and they could, and it would take a little work for me to help that, I will try to do that. In a business sense, there's a principle of like, we could all make money on the show. If there's no business potential for something, <laughs> I can't literally just throw money at something and go like, all right, so we're all gonna fail, and we'll all walk away. I thought like, yeah, that's a shot. So, Let's give it a shot. My dad's a professor at MIT. Yeah. And he says sometimes that there are three kinds of teachers. There's a teacher, there's an advocate, and then there's a mentor. And a teacher's commitment is to the discipline first. And like the students that come through his class, he teaches them well, but his commitment is first and foremost to the discipline. And the advocate will take some interest in the students and advocate for the students, but they won't stick their neck out for them. And then a mentor mm -hmm. is someone who is committed to like on a micro level, making sure that the students 
work in the correct way that elevates a discipline. And when they advocate for them, they feel comfortable. Mike is all three of those things. Oh. Mike is committed to the discipline of solo shows. I've never seen this to you before. But oh, Mike is committed to the discipline of, of, of solo shows <laughs> because I'm he's gonna listen to this. actually the only, <laughs> the, one of the only Americans actually doing solo shows at the moment in right. the way that is classically in this gray space between stand-up and theater. Yep. And he's an advocate. He's advocated for me. He's definitely advocated for Jacqueline. That show is wildly successful. And he is a mentor in the sense that like Mike's literally invested his, his money that he could be spending on his child. <laughs> <laughs> so like, of all those three things, like Mike is selling himself like a tiny bit short in the sense that like he loves other comedians. He and he loves comedians who love. We always right. talk about I the mean, Star my, Brothers. How he, much we love comedians who love other comedians. Yeah, and also yeah, my whole podcast working it out is about like working out bits in real time with comedians. I love talking to comedians about bits. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and Alex is like super game. Like if you listen to my episode of working it out with with Alex, like. Just like snap, 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 snap. It's just like yes and, yes and, yes and, yes and. Like that's my favorite part of comedy. The thing that I love about about like solo shows yeah. is that Mike sometimes says that solo shows are poetry more than prose. I think where I was artistically, if I can be like pretentious for a second, like Please. where I was artistically in 2018, 2019 was like, I think I knew what good solo shows were. Like I'd seen great solo shows. But I was like struggling to put, I could build a core, but I was struggling to put sort of elegance around it. I tried to like discuss white privilege by like talking about like the one time I like met Prince William. Like it was, it was, it was, it did very well on stage, but it, it got the biggest laughs in the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It got the biggest laughs in the show. And Mike saw the show and went, that bit doesn't belong there. I was like, Mike, it kills. And he's like, it's not, it doesn't belong in the show. Yeah. And he was right. And it sucks when someone gives you a note that you know is correct as soon as they start telling you. I'll just say this just as a narrative matter, right? This work takes place. You broke the show into pieces. You put it back together. Eventually, COVID allows you guys to get the show yeah. up uh, the Cherry Lane last fall. And then Omicron comes and shuts yeah. it down again. Yeah. I mean, I got some nice notices when it first opened yes. in the fall last year. But, you know, you're still ten. Then it, it got, got shut down. It got great reviews. The Times was just about to come out. Right. We told the Times that it was closing and reopening, and if they could hold it, we'd appreciate it. Yeah. They did. We reopened at the end of January. Right. It was a hard. It was a, it was a real business quandary. But, like, holding your breath through that period, like, you know, you close a show that's just, you start, you open a show. Yeah, it was wild. It's getting good, getting good favorable notices, yeah. and then you have to shut it down for X number of weeks. Yeah. You don't really know whether it's going to survive. And, of course, obviously, it took off like a rocket after that. That's where we are now. You finished the second run of it? No, the second run. I'm in the middle You're of the, the second, second run. run. But that run's sold out, so we put another six weeks on sale. Right. And those shows are, are starting yeah, at, to the Street at the Barrow Street. At the Barrow Street, yeah, which is where or I did Greenwich, my girlfriend's Greenwich boyfriend. House. It's yeah, Greenwich, Greenwich House now, right. which is where I did uh, my girlfriend's boyfriend in 2011. So for anybody who gets there, apparently there are very few tickets left for that run, which starts in. That run starts on June 13th, and like, yeah, those shows are doing all right. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm told. As I right. said, I think there's a chance you're going to be doing the show for the rest of your life, which um, is, you know, right now is okay with me. Like, yeah. I really like. It. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that you were saying though, like, why the fuck would you do this? And yeah. I think part of it is. My entry into New York theater scene, et cetera, was through Nathan Lane presenting my show in 2008, my right. first show, Sleepwalk With Me. Yeah. And it came out of, I had been a working comedian since 2000, and I had been working on this show called Sleepwalk With Me that chronicled my sort of denial of my own sleepwalking disorder right. until I literally jumped through a second-story window of a motel in Washington yeah. State. And so Nathan happened to be in the audience at Caroline's one night 
when I told that story. And he sent me a nice note. We had dinner. We got along really well. And I told him about the show that Sleepwalk with me, this show that I really want to do, but, you know, I don't know if I can and all this stuff. And he said that he would be open to presenting it. And then he did that. It was fall 2008. And everything in my career past that is a complete 180 from what preceded it. Right. And I, I mean, since then, I've, I mean, I think I've done like five solo shows. I've written and directed two features. Like, I basically was accepted into a group of artists that previous to that, I would say sort of snubbed their nose at what I was doing. Right. And so there's that. And then there's also Ira Glass, who mentored me right. with my piece on This American Life. So it, a little bit of it's paying it forward. The only reason I asked the question, honestly, is that like, I mean, there's no doubt that your world, which I know a little bit about, but not very much, is very competitive. But there's also seems to be like this kind of camaraderie where this is not unusual. It's not super common. It doesn't happen every day. Yeah, so like John Mulaney opened for me early yeah. in his career, and, and that was like that. You know what's funny? No comedian ever took me under their wing. Yeah. It ended up being Nathan Lane and Ira Glass, who are in the field of theater and right. storytelling and journalism. And it's just funny. I, I desperately wanted a mentor. Right. I, it's funny we're arriving at this, because I've never said this in an interview. I, I desperately wanted a mentor. No one wanted me. Right. I applied for the mentorships. I was turned down. These were informal applications. Yeah. But it was real. What's great about comedy, one of the things that's great about comedy, is that it really is a fandom. Like, you become a fan of, I'm sure it's the same in music or sports, but, but I don't know, I'm not, I'm not a musician or an athlete, but, but it, it really is, like, I'm very excited to meet a lot of the people that I see every day. Yeah. You know, like, it's, like I went to see Mike record one of his albums in, at the comedy studio in Boston when I was in high school. We were talking about this last night. Like 2007, 2008, whenever that would have been. Like, it is cool still for comedians to, you know. And also comics be giving and receiving notes is a very, is an essential part yeah. of, I, I guess, any sort of mentorship and comedy. I want to play another thing from Just For Us. Let's play this thing again, strangely, related to Judaism uh, with Alex. <laughs> there isn't, ju- the show is more than just. Yes, there's Judaism and anti-Semitism. Those are basically the two. Yeah. That's what kind of all there that's is. What I that's what I remember from it. It was brilliant, but you know, that's good. That's a little, that pretty much covers the waterfront. Let's oh. play this, let's play this second one. Aware of being Jewish, I reached her. I was at a children's birthday party in a old <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese. I was in a Chuck E. Cheese in Watertown, Massachusetts, and I reached for a slice of pizza that had some sausage on it. And my grandfather was there, and he slapped my hand. <laughs> and I went, "What?" And he went, "You can't have that. We're Jewish." And I said, "What does that mean?" <laughs> he just went, "It means you'll never be happy." <laughs> with the way things are and you'll want things to change and you'll always be like a little bit uncomfortable but it's kind of a good thing. And I said, I don't want to be Jewish. And he just smiled at me and went, buddy, that's the most Jewish thing there is. I was making fun of you. It's, you know, the show's about these things, right? And one of the things about that I loved watching the show the first time is like, I'm the freak for like narrative structure, right? So you're telling this story. The story has repulsion. But... There's just all of this. It's like, without saying it's like a Christmas tree, it's very clear what the trunk is and it's very clear what the branches are. And then there are these ornaments that kind of hang off. It's like other editors will sometimes say, that story's got a lot of little bowls of candy in there. You have digressions. Sure. Like where you go off to do an illustrative thing, to tell a story almost always from your history. In that case, the first time that I remember being aware of being Jewish, you tell stories about your brother, you tell stories about Christmas in your family and all that kind of stuff. Sure. How do you figure out 
and I know that Mike had some things to say about this. How do you figure out like what's too much and what's enough? Because it's very easy to lose the thread. I think that's literally the question. Early on, when we start working together, Mike would challenge me to, to find that. And like most good note givers, they never insist that you take the note, but they, <laughs> they would hmm. like you to show your work. Hmm. The show is about this meeting nominally. That's yeah. a central story. But the show is really about what kind of Jew am I and what does it mean to be presenting that level of Jew publicly and not just publicly on stage, but yeah. publicly in my everyday life and, you know, my interpersonal relationships. Like, what does it mean to be Jewish. So like that is a good guiding point in terms of what are the tangents in the show. And from a craft perspective, no tangents on a tangent. Like in terms of keeping the central story going, no tangents on a tangent. You still need to be able to see the main story from where you are. Mike, you've done this for a long time and yeah. very successfully, right? As you think about like, is that a golden rule for you? Because you do the similar kind of thing. You're telling a story that kind of lopes along and then there's, you know, little digressions yeah. and eddies that you decide to explore for a little while. Is that one of the things you've learned over time is that like digressions are great if they're entertaining or revealing, yes. but you can't build digressions on top of digressions on top of digressions without losing the thread. That was a rule that my director, Seth Barish, and I came up with maybe three, four years ago yeah. with the last show because we wanted to put words to a thing that we already sort of knew. Yeah. I had seen a play he directed, a solo play by Martin Moran called The Tricky Part. A very intense subject matter about how this guy, Martin, was abused by someone in his church in Colorado. Really beautiful story, well told. Probably the best solo show I've ever seen. Yeah. Not a lot of jokes, but when I saw it, I was researching solo shows. I was seeing everything on and off Broadway, and I just, saw, I just thought, that's the best solo show I've ever seen. I want to work with whoever's doing that. Yeah. So I wrote a letter, personal letter to Seth Barish, who I didn't know, with my comedy CD. We had CDs at the time, <laughs> folks. What CD um, was this, by the way? Dog Years. It was a self-released comedy album before To Drink Mike. A self-released CD, Rob. That's yeah, like, it was uh, on CDBaby.com is where it was oh available. Oh, my yeah, yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. That's a deep cut uh, by definition. I, if you, I, you can find that thing on eBay, it's probably worth it. I like, thought I was a perfectly a completist until just now. Like, 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 wait, there's a CD yeah. that he printed himself in his house on a CD, Rob. Of, like, you like, know the cakes they made, like, 25 like, and distributed crazy. to their friends? This is <laughs> totally, <laughs> totally mental. We're going to have to go try to find that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I sent him to the CD of Dog Years. And then I sent him the script for Sleepwalk With Me, which was so different from where it ended up. And we met, and he basically said, you know, I like your style, I like what you're doing, but I feel like if I was going to work on this, yeah. we'd have to spend a, a long time, a few years maybe, working on it. We worked on it for a few years, and it's going to be The Old Man in the Pool, which I'm touring now to Steppenwolf in the Taper Forum right. in Los Angeles, is going to be our fifth show, The Old Man in the Pool. Yes. And so one of our rules along the way has become... No tangents on a tangent, because fundamentally, I think the audience, when they come in, they want to hear the story. And then you take them on a tangent, and they're like, this is fun. Yeah. They take them a tangent on a tangent, and they go, where, what is this about? Yeah. What are we, and then you go back to the core again, and they're like, oh, it's the core. Okay, this is the core. Okay, or is that is the tangent on a tangent? Right. Was that the it was the core, the MacGuffin of what the tangent? Yeah. You know, is it actually the tangent of the tangent? You're sort of confusing your audience, and the thing that you ultimately want as a storyteller is actually 
propulsion, which you mentioned earlier, you want uh, causality. You want to use, as a screenwriter, and this is not my original concept, you want to think in terms of so then for plot as opposed to and then. Because and then is lateral, and lateral is boring. But so then propels the story, and ultimately... Dominoes. Yes, it's dominoes, it's dominoes. So, So you can go, so then this, so then this, so then this, and then you step out for a second into a tangent, you come back in, so then, so then, so then, so then, and the tangents give color, and they're fun, and we have a good time, we have laughs. If you go tangent on tangent, you're in the space of you're risking losing the audience. It's the art of the page turner, really. It's like when you're writing, I'm not a fiction fiction. I think like, if that's what you want, is you want a page turner. Some people don't. Some people, digressions are, there are people who love certain kinds of literary forms that they like, like to go off on long tangents that take them off for long. There's other people who are like, I want to keep you like on my story and I will go out just this far, but I'll only go off on that tangent in the space between when the domino is about to hit the next domino. I want to get you back in there before that next domino hits so you don't forget what domino is about to cause what's so next. It's tough because for a stand-up comic, you're trained by audiences and other comedians to be like, laughs, buddy. Just go out there and get laughs. And there is a bit of like, that guy's great. He can't get laughs. Like, you need to get laughs. And so once you start getting to a level of comedy where you can get laughs and you're doing solo shows... And this takes years to realize on your own. You have to untrain yourself slightly to realize that there are things that are as important as the Hmm. laughs. My director, Adam Brace, in London always talks about barnacles, which are jokes that get laughs, but they slow down the momentum of your ship as it moves through the show. And so every couple of months, Adam and I sit down and we trim off jokes that are getting laughs but they're just not worth the momentum that you're losing as you move through the show. I'll play one more thing of Alex in the show and then we're gonna move on, but I, I, only because I wanna raise one more thing because of course I'm interested in politics. And I said before, this is about Judaism, which obviously has political components to it, but there's another element of the show that's about anti-Semitism. This isn't really specifically about that, but it touches on, I wanna play this clip and then we can just talk about the politics of this show, which are deeply sublimated. It's not a partisan show at all, but I think it's shot through with politics. So let's play this clip and then we'll talk. I have a thing for this. If anyone ever asks you a question, there are four words that will save you every single time. Would you mind asking me if I saw the game last night? Did you see the game last night? Can you believe it? (laughs) It's brilliant. It works for everything. It means people's three favorite things. I know what you're talking about. I agree with you. And most importantly, you talk. (laughs) It works for you. Someone's like, recycling. You're like, can you believe it? They're like, I should bring it up on Tuesday. Playing like baseball. You're like, can you believe it? They're like, they're contracting all the teams. Someone's like, the Kennedy assassination. You're like, okay, can you believe it? It works for everything. I use it on Israel and Palestine once a week. Can you believe I've got to go? I've got to go. The other reason it's political is obviously it makes me laugh because of that. My boss, Chris Harris, my old boss on a multicam, he would say it in the writer's room all the time. And I was always like, he doesn't know what we're talking about. He would just say it so that we go. But it's obviously a good trick in life. And you're like, oh, that actually will work. But it also the end of it where you talk about how it gets you out of having conversations about Israel and Palestine. Classic kind of example. And the reason I'm raising it is because the show is, again, I'll, I'll assert what I believe. Sure. Which is that the show is... Like, there's all kinds of politics in it, but you never talk about it. 
and it's like you're trying to do a very political show in which you don't scare anybody off by seeming like you're being very political. At least that's the way I read it. And I can talk about the politics of it all day and I don't want to here, but it seems like you're making a very conscious effort to be like, no, this isn't a political show. You're not supposed to notice that. But yeah, I mean, yes. The answer is yes. Rabbi Angela Buckdahl, who's a rabbi at Central Synagogue, came to the show and she said, do you want to know what I think the show is about? I think the show is about empathy. And so if there is one political thing that's shot through the show, it's about where I think empathy and listening and conversation is required and where the limit to that is. It avoids touching on, in some cases, specific issues, even though I give glimpses at them all the time. And I, do, I do jokes from both perspectives. I do jokes about Jews experiencing white privilege and I do jokes yeah. about Jews not experiencing. Yeah. But like, yeah, the show doesn't tries not to scare anyone off for crowd-pleasing reasons early on, but it's also like, yeah, there's very heavily political. Mike? I mean, you're a politically interested guy. We've had conversations about mm -hmm. politics. You're like alive to the world of politics. You don't do really political stuff in your work. No. This is not like a, a sociology of comedy kind of question, right? Is it a note for you to be like, avoid overt politics and comedy, or is that wildly oversimplify things? Political comedy, I mean, John Stewart pointed this out and he, probably the best at it in the last 20 years at least, it's disposable. And so Jon Stewart sometimes will say, everything I did on The Daily Show, you know, what do we do with it? And it's so powerful, because think of how talented Jon is, how smart he is. And what I'm trying to do with my shows and what I encourage Alex and Jacqueline and others to do with their shows, and this I guess goes for all comedies, like try to make something that's human. Because if you make something as human, people watch it 10 years from now, 20 years from now, the way that we watch Richard Pryor specials now. I still watch Richard Pryor specials. Because ultimately, the best case scenario from Alex's show would be people have a fun time, they laugh, they have a good time, they maybe feel something, and then they know a Jewish person. Sure. <laughs> and it, it, not in person, yeah. but on their television screen or in the theater, right? So like you, you look at like, gay rights in our country is like you could make a case I don't know if this is true that like Will and Grace has, has, has much to do with people being open to homosexuality as anything political in the last 40 years Will and Grace and it's like Ellen as well yeah Ellen yeah. I mean there's like countless examples of this in culture where we need to see the thing and see ourselves in the thing that isn't us per se right. or, or isn't that specific per se and go oh yeah that's like me. Yeah. And then we go, oh yeah. And then, you know, 10 years later, more people started to know people in their lives who are gay, et cetera. And then, and then gay marriage, et cetera. But it's like, progress is partly through culture. Yeah. You know, the thing that Mike said, I think you're, he's making a joke, but also probably not the thing about knowing a Jew. People ask me now all the time, like, it's a very weird question to get as a comedian. People are like, how do we solve anti-Semitism? Like, <laughs> and I'm like, well, well this is the point. Well, let me take out my anti-Semitism yeah, notebook. Let me, let me just let me read. But Jonathan Sachs, who's the chief rabbi of the UK yeah. for a long time, I'm not a quote, just I just quote rabbis endlessly. Oh, I was gonna say, it's like you're, you're bidding not to be a Jew, you're bidding to be the Jew. The Jew, yeah. This is the clickbait. Enough with the fucking rabbi yeah. shit. <laughs> and like, and just edit that. Just, just like, yeah, I've heard enough about the rabbis. <laughs> Oh, this guy and his rabbis. Uh, Jonathan Sachs said one of the ways to solve anti-Semitism was to let people understand the experience of what it's like to be 
Jewish. And I actually, the funny thing is I said that to a really thoughtful family member of mine, and he was like, I disagree. And I was like, okay, so like maybe I'm wrong, but like I think that works as well as any. And it's so interesting because there was a lot, Jason Zinneman, who's a comedy critic for the Times, wrote an article about Jews and, and comedy and yeah. how Jews feel about, you know, comedy about them at the moment. And he quoted a Jackie, he, he mentioned my show, and he quoted uh, a Jackie Mason line. He goes, audiences, non-Jewish audiences walk out and go, it's a hit. And Jewish audiences walk out and go, it's too Jewish. And I think it's really funny because I am having that experience sometimes where people after shows who are Jewish are like, do you think non-Jews will get this? And I'm like, I did it in front of non-Jews abroad for two years. I will say this. I know others have said this to you. I don't know that you'll ever write anything again that has as good an ending as the show. Because it's, it's so perfect. I'm not going to spoil it. I'm not going to spoil it. But, I have that with Sleepwalk with me. Same it, thing. Ira, Ira Glass always says to me, you're never going to be able to follow that story of jumping through a window. Yes. It's, it's also just the perfect kicker, I will say. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, you may, for this show, it's it's, there could be a no better ending. And I will say it's also deeply political. Because, right. because built into it is a whole universe of views about the characters that you've just you are the ideal viewer for the show and it's a nightmare to talk to you it really is it's like it's it's an incredible thing but it lands just as a very simple joke that makes everybody laugh and as soon as you think about it if you think about it for any period of time you're like oh I this there's a lot in that I think Seinfeld agrees with me about this if I remember correctly oh interesting yeah well he didn't say that fatalistic thing that you just said he's like you'll never top it but he said it was really good he said said the kicker was really good but I want to speak to the thing that you you guys were talking a lot about sort of the Jewish elements of the show and it's about Judaism it's about for me it isn't I'm just an audience member I'm just one audience member in the show for me it's just about humanity and being alive, and I'm connecting to the performer on stage. Right, and he said this, this thing before, about it's about empathy. It can be about a bunch of things, right? Yeah. At different levels, it's about different things. It's topically about certain things, then it's another layer about this, and then I think your argument is the essence of it yeah. is it's about empathy. something else that's not about any of those topical. And, and like, there's an extraordinary comedian who's touring with me quite a bit right now named Atsuko Akatsuka, and she has a really interesting life story. When she's 10 years old, her grandmother brought her to America on a quote-unquote vacation, and they moved here. I mean, yeah. and, and yeah. she was an undocumented immigrant for a lot of years. And her, she talks about her story on stage, and yeah. my audience, she's been opening for me in D.C. and all these places, Portland, Seattle. My audiences love her, yeah. and my takeaway from it isn't, oh, that's this person with this extraordinary American story, Japanese-American story. Their takeaway is, that person's hilarious. But the undercurrent of it is they go away with the experience of having spent time with this person with this extraordinary story, which is why I like Alex's show so much. We are going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more Mike Birbiglia and Alex Edelman on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell on High Water. The other thing that Alex said was that there's this thing, and you commented on it earlier in the interview, where he said, when you do these shows where you're there about you, your experiences, they're autobiographical, there's a weird thing that happens, right? You were talking before about how audiences, like your audiences are judging you as a Jew or audiences are judging you as a parent, right? That's sure. like a thing that happens. And I, I want to go into it because it's an interesting thing about the arc of your career from stand-up to what you knew now. First, I want to play. Oh, my God. We, as oh, far as my we God. Know, I know this. I as, know, far as, as far as we this know, is funny. there's probably another, <laughs> there may be older video of you that exists, oh but my this God. is the oldest video we, that so we old. find. 2004, Birbiglia 
on Comedy Central, Central Presents. Presents. So let's uh, hear a little Wow. Bit. I went to a dance club the other day, which was timely because my self-esteem had been hovering around normal and I'd been meaning to knock it down to negative a thousand. <laughs> Everyone tries to get you to dance at these clubs, especially women. They're like, you gotta dance, you gotta dance. And then I dance and they're like, not like that. <laughs> I, I'm not aggressive at the clubs. My friends are aggressive for me. It's kind of embarrassing. They're like, he thinks you're cute. It's like, what am I gonna say? Like, no, I don't. <laughs> no, uh. First of all, this is sort of a Matt Damon haircut. There's like from some early phase, Matt Damon. Yeah, first of all, I'm like 23, 24 years old. It actually proves my point. It's in my current show, The Old Man in the Pool which is I've had this hairline since I was 15 years old. <laughs> like, when I was 15, my hair was like, it's stressful around here. We're going to have to lay off some strands. And, like, yeah, I'd say same hairline. But, yeah, no, I had a sort of a Matt Damon-y look. Not quite as good looking, but, you know, still a little Danish. <laughs> but you've got that kind of, like, New England thing. Also, what's that voice in there? There's some intonations there that are not the way you speak. I always now. talk about this on my podcast. It's I, a weird drawl in Early that. in my career... And I think we all do this, is we, yes. we emulate comedians we admire, in my case, Mitch Hedberg and Stephen Wright and others. And I, I actually was really drawn to one-liner comedians yeah. and heady comedians. So I had this sort of like, I, I don't know how to describe the persona, but it's definitely not me. And <laughs> I, I've heard this said by like Seinfeld and others in interviews over the years is this idea of like, as a stand-up comedian, it takes you seven to 10 years, sometimes more, to become yourself. You start off trying to be like your idols, and at a certain point, if you're lucky, you become yourself. Some people don't, by the way. Yeah. Some people, and I, I won't name names, some people are very famous for ripping off other people's affect. And it's, <laughs> yeah. as a comedian, as someone who knows both of the people. Could you name the name like, of some, could nah. you name some, No, could you name somebody's name who's dead? I mean, an example of someone who is the, the person who is dead is my friend Mitch Hedberg, who passed away, and got out. imitated by so many people who are now currently alive and thriving, and and it's wild to see because you're just going. I used to tell Mitch, I used to say like, "Hey man, like this person's sort of doing you," and he would go like. It's not that similar. You know what I mean? Like, he would sort of, like, blow there it off. in the back taking out, it's not that similar. Yeah, not, not, <laughs> not that, that similar. <laughs> let's actually, let's do that. Let's listen to Hedberg now. Just sure. We asked you guys to come up with, like, five people yeah. who've influenced you, you, you admire. Mitch is one of the people you mentioned. So let's play that, because some people, I think, know who he is, and mm -hmm. some people don't. Let's play a little Mitch. You know, when it comes to racism, people say, I don't care if they're black, white, purple, or green. Oh, hold on now. Purple or green? You got to draw the line somewhere. I like rice. Rice is great when you're hungry and you want 2,000 of something. One time a guy handed me a picture of me. He said, here's a picture of me when I was younger. Every picture is of you when you were younger. Oh, that's so good. He's <laughs> the greatest. He's the greatest. I can watch it all day. so fucking good. I can watch it all day. I was lucky enough to open for Mitch at the Dayton Jokers Comedy Club yeah. around 2003. Yeah. I picked him up in my mom's station wagon at his hotel, and his hair was wet, and he was with his wife, Lynn Shawcroft, who, Man. who, was on the podcast who I had recently. on the pod working out recently. We talked all about And I got to meet my idol. And it's Judd Apatow said to me recently, this thing he asked me, he goes, did you ever feel like you weren't succeeding the way you wanted to? And I was like, no, no, I got to meet Mitch Hedberg. Yeah. Like, that's how big it is. 
is, yeah. I don't know if you have that in journalism, but like meeting my idols, it's like, that's a ball game. Yeah. And they treat you like a person and you have a real conversation. I mean, what the, we're going to get more than that? Yes. No, exactly. I mean, we're all fanboys. Mike. Here's my question for you. You were in this period, you know, that we just played. As you said earlier today, you said, you know, I was a working stand-up comic. You were, you were a stand-up. Yeah. Right? And then it changed. Right? I mean, I could point to the works that signify that change. And you did, I think, earlier yeah. around, around sleepwalking. But just talk about how it changed. Like you started doing what the inflection a point was yeah a different yeah and to, an inflection point that said it you're working in a totally different direction but also it seems to have changed the way you think about your work like what are you actually trying to do here and what your aspirations are and what are you reaching for which was not just doing one-liner jokes anymore yeah so when I was in college I studied screenwriting and playwriting at Georgetown and and I thought for sure that's going to be my life I'm going to be a screenwriter playwright. I studied under a professor named John Glavin, who's brilliant. I mean, in my class was Jonah Nolan. I mean, well, like, John Mulaney later class. took his class. Like, like, it was murderer's row of writers in this class that came out of John Glavin's class. And I thought, of course I'm going to be a screenwriter. I'm very good at this. <laughs> I'm in college. You know, everyone in college thinks they're really good at the thing. And then they realize they're not. And then I would, like, you know, go on. This is the 2000s. Like, on Monster.com, you're like, huh, no one's looking for screenwriters. Can you believe it? <laughs> to, to coin a phrase. And I was working the door at the Washington, D.C. Improv because I had won the funniest person on campus contest. And then they asked me if I'd be a door person and in, in busboy. So I was doing that. And I was getting to watch like all the great comedians, you know, Kathleen Madigan, George Lopez and Margaret Cho and all these people coming through and I'm Mitch Hedberg and I'm, I'm like soaking it up. And so then I get to the end of college, I can't apply for a job screenwriting, doesn't exist. So I go, well, what can I do? I mean, I can do stand up comedy, they pay me 50 bucks a spot. I can live on that, I can live on 300 bucks a week and figure out how to cobble that together. And this is what my movie Sleepwalk With Me ends up being about plot-wise, is like just driving my mom's station wagon around the country, basically taking any club that will accept me. And then eight years later, I circle back to playwriting and I create the solo play that is Sleepwalk With Me and it merges what I understand about drama and what I understand about stand-up comedy into this hybrid that has become a signature thing. And then as it turns out, they're, they were doing it in Europe already, but I didn't actually even know that. That was like, that's like what all Edinburgh Fringe shows are, apparently. I've never even been to the Edinburgh Fringe, but that's like the whole, yeah. so like when yeah. I go to London, like I'm going to London in June, like people come out in London a lot because they're like, yeah, this it's is an Edinburgh these show. are like yeah. our shows. Yeah. And then, and then the other puzzle piece along the way is I met Ira Glass and I met Seth Barish and I met Catherine Birds in the Moth storytelling series and the, all of those things were inflection yeah. points towards yeah. the storytelling thing where I was on stage and I could feel that there was a deeper connection between me and the audience when I was telling a story than when I was doing what you played just now. Yes. What I was doing just now is funny. And, it, you know, I have some punch up for it. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking too. I was like, yeah. I, I, no, the back half of it, I'm like, ah, that's just, that's better. sort of filler. But yeah, I just, honestly, it was a connection with the audience. And so when I see something like Alex's show or Jacqueline's show, what I'm hoping is that that type of comedy where there's a human connection with the audience, yeah. that it proliferates. Because, I mean, 
what am I going to do in my career? I'm doing my fifth special. I'm going to do what? Six, seven, ten? I want that to be the culture of comedy. I want, sure. I want comedy to be able to make you feel something, make you think, make you laugh at the same time. I'm going to play a little sleepwalk with me. This is relatively long, but it's from the show, not from the movie. But in order to tell the story, which is a oh, key okay. element, the thing we got yeah. to watch all things about a minute, a little over a minute long. All the stuff you just said, obviously, is true. Yeah. But the stuff you talk about is stuff that's, you know, there's a level of bravery involved in doing what you do. And I just want to talk about oh, like thanks. how you got to that point that you decided to be brave in that way. Let's watch this. I had this dream that I was in the Olympics for some kind of arbitrary event like dust bustering. <laughs> and they told me I got third place. And I stood up on the third place podium. And I'm feeling good about myself. I'm new to the sport. Uh, <laughs> And they say, actually, you got second place. And I move over to the second place podium and it starts wobbling. And it's wobbling and wobbling. And I wake up and I'm falling off the top of our five-foot bookcase <laughs> in our living room. And I land on the floor hard on top of our TiVo. And it, I know. And it, and it breaks into pieces. It was like one of these stories you hear where people black out drinking, they wake up in Idaho, they don't know where they are, they're just like, oh, no! Hardee's, you know, or whatever's there. But it, it was in my own living room. I was just like, ah, TiVo pieces. <laughs> my girlfriend woke me up in the morning and she says, Michael, what happened? <laughs> To the Tipo. <laughs> I got second place. That's where you're kind of beginning to open up about this thing you said earlier, like to start talking about this sleep disorder. Yeah. Was like, not only is it personal and revealing and, and taking you to a different kind of territory than the, the kind of comedy that Stephen Wright or Mitch did. But it's like the beginning of a process where you start revealing a bunch of stuff about yourself that puts you at risk, yeah. that makes you vulnerable, that exposes things about yourself that are not yeah. things that are the things that people normally like to talk about, even with a lot of their close friends, let alone on stage in front of audiences night after night after night. I'm curious about how you like got yourself to that place where that seemed like not only something you were willing to do, but something that is like the core of what you now do. Look, I don't know the answer to this. I can take my best stab at it. I think part of it is I grew up in Massachusetts in a very, I would say, a very repressed culture. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I understood that until I got to college at age 18 because I had lived in it my whole life. So, like, I, I have a joke on Two Drink Mike. I go, I was an altar boy as a kid, and the answer is no. <laughs> I wasn't. I think it's because they knew I was a talker. I have that look about me. And I, I was. I was an altar boy, and I fundamentally didn't understand that I didn't fit in until I got to college and I met like my improv friends and my comedy friends and I was like, oh, I didn't fit in. Yeah, like yeah. I didn't even know. <laughs> I had no idea. And the reason I didn't fit in is that I was a real talker, like I say in the joke. And I would say what was on my mind and I was surrounded by people who, in my opinion, I don't mean to cast a judgment, were just a little more withheld. And when I would say the thing, like, I fell off my thing sleepwalking, or I did this, uh, or how I felt about something that was deep and revealing, people go, why are you talking about that? Yeah. Why are you talking about that? <laughs> and, <laughs> so that's the one thing. That's, that's an ingredient. The second thing is, and I talk about it in Sleepwalk With Me, the album, and I talk about it in my Old Man in the Pool show right now, is I had cancer, I had bladder cancer when I was 20. Yeah. And I really thought, you know, 
for uh, about a year or so, I thought, uh, this could be it. It wouldn't be a rap on Mike Birbiglia. <laughs> Ten specials, really? We're gonna wrap Mike. We're gonna wrap Mike. job, Mike. You're done. Uh, we're gonna keep the his brother Joe. Joe, you're gonna work for a couple more hours. Uh, no, the uh, <laughs> I really did think like it might be a wrap. And when you face that at 20, it changes you, because I think what happens is, and of course I had this brush with death with sleepwalking. I jumped through a second story window at 25 or whatever. When you have a brush with death, you just go like. Nothing matters. Like, you think you're keeping secrets? You're not. I feel like that's the, thing, the biggest thing about being a secret teller on stage is people laugh in the audience, and their laughter is basically saying, oh, yeah, 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 I've had that. Yeah. And there's something so comforting about that. And so, so often, people are resistant to telling deep personal secrets that they feel about themselves, but actually like that's sort of the only part that's interesting. Yeah. Also, it's a double-edged sword because like you say, the people who are like, why are you talking about that? Be like, that guy's weird. Yeah. But <laughs> yes, like, yes. if you make a career out of it, you will find your people like, I have- Not even a career. I think in life. Maybe, yeah. That's I think, I mean, I think like, if, you, if you surround yourself with a group of friends where you are open to not being repressed and telling your truth to those people, that's a better existence. You've written a couple pieces about advice that you've offered about that yeah, yeah. that appeared in the Times. And there's a place where there's one of those pieces, I forget which one it was, but you, I think the later one about- There's uh, one called Six Tips for Making It Small in Hollywood. This is from Six Tips to Getting Your Solo Plane at Broadway. Oh, Okay. Uh, a more recent one, I think it was 2018. But I should re- probably read that. <laughs> <laughs> but it includes this thing where you say, revealing yourself can be lonesome when an audience doesn't respond. It feels like they're saying, not only do we not like your show, but we don't like you as a person. Yeah. And sometimes they are saying that, so don't hang out with those people, which is funny. And then you say, the point is you're taking a risk for a reason. You're doing it for the people who might feel better about something in their lives because of something you're willing to admit about yours. That's like a, a relatively... That's um, really smart. It's, it's, well, it's both smart, but it's also very kind of, um, um, I don't want to say noble exactly the word, but it's a very kind of a, um, a nice aspiration that that's the core of what you're trying to achieve. I would imagine if I talk to most comics, uh, it seems like that boils down to an essence of thing that many people in the business would not necessarily say that they're, that they're or am I wrong about that? Yeah, I mean, look, it's hard to, to parse you know, I enjoy performing in front of audiences. Yes, I sure. enjoy laughter. I enjoy yeah. good food. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but also I feel like, like in 2007, I developed a sitcom for CBS. It was like a multicam, yeah. sort of bastardized, commercial, glossy, three, you know, multicam version of my life yes. as a sitcom. And it was so eye-opening because... We filmed it and it had a great cast. Francis Conroy and played my mom. Bob Odenkirk played my brother. I mean, just like Nick Kroll played my cousin. It was a like, great cast. And it was good for that format, but we were answering notes from the network and the studio and all these places, and it just increasingly, at every turn, got watered down. And that was an inflection point for me in terms of, like, this is what I'm going to spend my life doing. I'm going to fucking put out mediocre entertainment and like spend 90 hours a week working on that? Yeah. Why? Well, Why would I do that? I, again, and no, so I, then I left that. Yes. And I, every, every time television calls, I say no, because I just don't want any part of that. We are going to take one more break and we'll be back with more Mike Perbiglia and Alex Edelman on Hell and High Water.
And we are back with Mike Birbiglia and Alex Edelman on Hell and High Water. Mike? I think for most people, even people who are very smart and very accomplished, there's like a hierarchy of things that they would never do. Like many of them are afraid to speak in public. Just speak in public, people are mortifying. Yeah, terrifying. So then the next thing is there are people I know who don't like stand-up comedy because <laughs> they find it all so embarrassing. Yeah, like, yeah. They're mortified by the prospect of standing up and trying to tell jokes in front of people. That would be even worse than public speaking. Yeah. So as you go from, I don't like public speaking to I would never want to tell jokes in front of people to I would never want to build an entire career around telling jokes and telling funny stories around some of the most embarrassing and self-revelatory things that you could ever tell about yourself or things yeah. that would expose you in a very raw, very vulnerable way. I think for many people, that's like a fate worse than death. And yet you've embraced it and found a way to kind of build shows that are incredibly funny that people love. It's not my impression of the way that a lot of people in this business think about what they're trying to do, which is most of them are trying to make people laugh. That's about it. I don't understand the point of the other version. Right. But I'm not wrong, right? It's the case that many comics, to your point earlier, if people laugh, if they tell jokes that kill, they're happy. That's like- But that those is, aren't our people. Well, I'm not, I'm, 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 sorry. I, that's I mean, kind of my point. That's kind of my point, is that they're not your people. But, the whole interview here is that they're not. Yeah, like, yeah. You guys think about this in a different way. That's sort of what I'm trying to get but, at. But I actually think that a lot of the people, like Mitch Hedberg, for example, when he was alive, like I don't think he would have described his goals as being what I describe my goals as being. Right. But the result is the same, I think. I think you watch Mitch and you do feel less alone. I think you feel like, oh, that like rock and roll, like sunglasses guy who's looking at the floor, rattling off these punchlines, thinks the same thing I do. You know, like if you zoom out to like a comedian like a Seinfeld or a Mitch Hedberg where it's punchlines do do experience a mini catharsis from the banality of them observing a thing that you thought only you noticed right so I'm just doing it with personal stories yeah it's the same thing and those people might describe their goals differently but it's the same thing so here's, I'm going to read these lists, okay, just for the sake of it so everybody understands. I ask these guys, to, can we give us five? Mike's ads, Mitch Hedberg, Tignataro, who's what I'm going to play in a second, Kathleen Madigan, Stephen Wright, and Jared Carmichael. Jared Carmichael's got a new thing out that everybody loves. Drew right Carmichael, yeah, it's yeah, called Nathaniel. Yeah, wonderful. It's to be incredible, right? So there's that. And there's a common thread through those. It's kind of interesting, like, the way that they hang together for you. And this one over here oh, gave us a different kind of list because it's got things on it like, Alex, do you remember who you listed? You can say I it. listed... Gary Shamling, Steve Martin, yeah, mm. David Foster Wallace, yes, Nora Ephron, yes, mm. Chris Morris, and um, George Saunders. He had to give us six since we asked for five mm. because that's not very little anything to do. Because right, yeah. he put David Foster Wallace on there, who's kind of like one of these things, not like the other. You know? Well, you know, the thing is, like, all these people did something that's different than what people expect, and I don't think they are understood as great or perfect comedy voices. Like David Foster Wallace had this capacity. Like, if you ever read a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, it's hysterical. Oh, it's a riot. And, like, that 12 Monkeys piece, the piece about John McCain's Straight Talk Express, like, it is laugh-a-scent. I'm aware. He's very funny, but I just, there's not quite in the same category. I'm not, I love that you decided to bend the the category. And Nora Ephron, too, like, she wrote a thing about porn, and it's not even, like, that you laugh all the time. It's that you realize that... Sometimes you see the perfect line of a poem. I read a poem by this guy, Matt Zapruder. There's a line about how Diet Coke tastes like someone misremembering what chocolate is. And in the whole poem, it's really funny. It's not a laugh out loud, but there's something about that. You go, yes, that's it. That's it. And Dave Foster Wallace, every sentence is, that's it. 
Efron had that too about her. And there are other fiction writers who like Nathan Englander. I just love it. That's it. So is your list mostly people who have influenced you or people who you admire? People who have raised my standard. Right. Like Steve Martin, everyone knows that he's a genius comedian. But how many people know that once he became famous, he invested in his own erudition to make himself into a fine wine instead of grape juice? He wrote Picasso with Lupino Gilli, and he does what he wants. And he's still a genius comedian. He just put out a comedy special with Martin Short. So these are people who influenced me when I started trying to mature to the next level. Do you think of those mainly as people who have been influential or people who you admire or both? I think mostly it was an admire. Right. Because all of my, I think, influences of what I do now didn't really fit the category of what you asked for. Right. So like James L. Brooks would be probably my main influence. When I see broadcast news, I think, yeah, I want my shows to be like that. Yes. Which is to say very specific characters who have very funny things about them and very dramatic things about them, and there's a problem in the course of airing that problem dramatically. We're laughing, we're laughing, we're crying. Yeah. So I want to just talk about Tignatara for a second just because I think it speaks to something we were just talking about a second ago. I don't want to get morose about this, but I remember reading the story when she did her cancer thing. Yes, um, at Largo, yeah. At at Largo. She was like one kind of comic before this, and this kind of yes. moment was a transformative moment for yes. her career, right? I, actually, I'm looking at this New Yorker piece about it, which I thought was funny in the context of what we were talking about, where this person, the writer for this piece, Andrew Morantz, back in 2012 when this happened, was, was telling a story of this. Before August 3rd of this year, her stage persona, takes that is, was somewhere on the Stephen Wright, Todd Berry, Mitch Hedberg continuum. Mm, sure, Verbally yeah. sharp, intense but spacey, relishing awkward pauses. Some of her jokes were deadpan one-liners. Some were conceptually adroit. He praises her, right? And then he's like, and then she showed up at Largo and did this thing. Yes. And that people who saw it in real time were blown away yeah. by the genius of it. I think Lucy Kay was one of the people who was blown away by it. And then they, that recording of that night yes. eventually became available. So I just want to play the first, because it's the beginning of it is the thing that really hits you the hardest, is the first minute of it here. And then you kind of talk about why this is genius or why she's like a comics comic, I would say. And a lot of yeah, comics. But she's also very popular. I, I mean, like I, I was in Portland with her recently and she was at the theater next door yeah which is twice as large <laughs> i did not mean to suggest she was not popular i meant to say that she gets a lot of kind of admiration from comics yes. in the way she's beloved in, and in the way that certain yes. other comics are like they're comics comics and people she's like a, she is take her apart in a way so let's yeah. just play this hello i have cancer hello good evening hello I have cancer, how are you? Hi, how are you? Is everybody having a good time? I have cancer, how are you? Ah, it's a good time. Diagnosed with cancer. (sighs) Feels good. Just diagnosed with cancer. Oh my God. It's weird because with humor, the equation is tragedy plus time equals comedy. I am just at tragedy right now. So this goes on for a while. She hmm. talks about her cancer diagnosis and evening I have cancer. So oh, yes. you know, I remember reading, you know, when uh, uh, when Norm Macdonald died, comics were like put him on a pedestal, right? And I liked reading some of these stories that tried to deconstruct why, you know, like what what was it about his 
work that made him a particular favorite of comics. And I just said, asserted about her that that's the case. That's that piece of, of, of work right there that people say is genius, right? I'm, I'm interested in why you guys think it's genius, if you do. Just to understand the way you think about it as a, as a, as a piece of craft. A lot of these acts that we admire, they're high wire acts. Right. Like yes. Tignataro, that's a high wire act. Yeah, it's a high wire act. I agree. I mean, I think there's so much cultural discussion of comedy yeah. for whatever reason in the last 20 years, and you could theorize all the reasons why. And I think the thing that's often lost on people is that comedians are riding the line of what's unacceptable to say in polite company and what's not unacceptable to say. And so then when people say the thing that's unacceptable, a group of people who are kind of annoying wag their finger and they go, you cross the line. And the comedian's kind of like, yeah, no shit. I'm trying to figure out where the line is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true of like almost all comedians. And it's, it's a really weird thing to, it's like walking into a painter's studio when they're like halfway through a painting being like, no blue, huh? Yeah. You know? <laughs> I will say also, though, another broadcast news line, you know, and she says in the movie, you cross the line. He says, well, they keep moving the little sucker, don't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah, Which is like exactly the thing. It's like you're not trying to find out where that line is, and, it, but, and they do keep moving it. But also there's growth as a person, too. Like, I did a joke that no one ever dinged me for. Yeah. Uh, you should do it now so we can maybe cancel nah. you. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe cancel you. I wouldn't be canceled as a joke about someone's weight, a character within the joke. And then I read a book by this guy, Tommy Tomlinson, called The Elephant of the Room, and Tommy weighs... 450 pounds oh, or yeah. something. And, that book. and it's a great book. And I just read it and halfway through the first page, I was like, I'm never doing that joke again. By the way, I'm lucky that I was exposed to that in that moment. And I don't know that our cultural conversation has progressed to the extent that jokes about people's weight are totally verboten. Yeah. But still, like, it is one of the concrete examples in my life of personal growth that is reflected in material. I'll, I'll recommend something that I did, <laughs> which is a, a special in 2017 called Thank God for Jokes. Yeah. Because I feel like when it came out, yeah. no one sort of noticed that it was the thing that we're going to be talking, talking about, about now, now. Yeah. like all the time. Yeah. And so people ask me about the nature of jokes, what's crossing the line, blah, blah, blah. I have a whole special about it. It's on Netflix. When you say what we're talking about all the time now is like what? The nature of what is too far in what's a joke. Far? Right. And where whether a comedian can say anything. Yes. And of course, <laughs> the answer is yes. And then have the consequences of what that is. Right. Because your job that you chose was to cross the line. Right. So it's like, some people are like, fuck you, we're going to fire you. You're like, all right, well, I guess that happened. Yeah. I guess I got to find a new job. And as you say, and thank God for jokes, everyone <laughs> is offended. Yeah, everyone's by something. offended by something. And yes. Some people disagree with me on that. I think it's true. Someone walked out of my show a couple weeks ago because they didn't like a joke in there that was anti, anti-vaxxers. Right. Yeah, said, yeah of course. When you hear, again, we won't name names here, right? But there are working comedians or people who have other jobs, but who used to be comedians, whatever, they're like, there is people who like kind of made the crusade against what they call cancel culture into a regular feature of the work they do, right? That's like a thing that they complain about being canceled. I guess the question is what your view is of that. I think people maybe need a, a more thought-through take. It, it's become a crossfire discussion. Yeah, right, right. And it, it, seems, needs it, seems a, like... it needs like a thoughtful discussion. Yeah. It's confusing because majority of the people, we won't name names, majority of the people who are going, cancel culture, we can't say anything anymore. They're not that funny. 
Yeah. Sorry, guys. Or, you're not or, funny. Or, or, or you look at them and go, wait, you have a giant contract and you're still working and there's yes. millions of people who love you. Uh, yeah. like, you're, uh, you've been canceled. A lot, of, well, the, a lot of those people, their currency is saying. Right. Yeah, I have a joke and thank God for jokes. I go, like, the people who think they're funny are like the guy at work who's like, nice tits, Betsy. And everyone's like, what? And he's like, I'm joking. <laughs> and then I say, like, a joke should never end with I'm joking. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, most of the people who complain about it, they're not that funny. I have to say it through my teeth. Because they're my peers yeah. and they're like my coworkers, but they're not that funny. But there's a group of, I would say, like very, very smart comedians who do take that up and make very valid points. Yeah. I'm going to play this. I was going to play it for a different reason, but let's play this little clip of Mike's from Thank God for Jokes and talk about what you're about to do next because we've raised it a couple times, but I want to get into it a little bit more because I saw it, at least one version of it not that long ago. I want to hear you talk about it a little more. So let's play that. I was at my urologist recently. He goes, you're a comedian? I go, you're a doctor? But I didn't say it. I just thought it. You know. And he goes, if you're a comedian, how come you're not funny now? What I wanted to say was, I'm going to take this conversation we're having and then repeat that to strangers. <laughs> and then that's the joke. <laughs> You're the joke later. Now, the reason I wanted to play that was because of the urologist reference, right? And you, yeah, already, yeah. you already mentioned, you know, the, the cancer, reality yeah. of your cancer, which is at the center of the thing you have now been working on for how long? Uh, the Old Man yeah. in the Pool you, has been in progress. Started, so the new one was on Broadway in 18. And so I started it in 19. And what are we in now? 22. So it's three years. And then it's going to be... Steppenwolf in May, Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles in August, and then hopefully, off Broadway or on Broadway in 23. So it'll be like a four-year process. Right. I'm three years into four. And I think when I saw it, you saw a version ago, of it, yeah. A version of it, yeah, yeah we got a couple months ago. I asked you afterwards how many times have you done it at this point. And you were like, in some versions, some not necessarily, sometimes the entire thing, sometimes in parts, sometimes at a comedy club, sometimes here, yeah. there. Maybe you know, five, six hundred times, yeah, sure. right? You, you have made the point in many places that every piece of writing you do a lot of revision. Yeah. But that is like, that's not 15 drafts. That's not yeah. 30 drafts. It's masochistic. That's five or six hundred <laughs> versions. And I want you to talk about your process because you're like, I finish every time I do it, I tape it. I listen to it the next day. I go through it. Like you're so rigorous about it and it goes on for years, yeah. for hundreds of iterations to get to the final thing that we're going to see on Broadway, knock wood. Yeah. Just talk about that. My view on these specials is I view them like little films or little plays, yeah. which is to say that I want people to be able to watch them in 10 years from now. I want people to be able to watch them in 20 years from now. I don't know if that'll happen. That's the goal. Right. That's how long it takes to, certainly it takes to make a film or a play, if not longer. You know, I know Bombeck made one of my favorite films, The Squid and the Whale. He was in process for nine years or something like that. Right. I mean, it was like a wild, wild ride. And so my sense is, especially now when we're inundated with content, we're inundated with people's TikTok videos and, and Instagram posts and all these things. And, and everything is a TV series. Every half idea. I'm sort of amazed when you see a documentary and you're like, that was a good documentary. And then they make a narrative TV series of the fucking documentary? Like, no, I saw the... Yeah, 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 I saw the documentary. I'm good. Yeah. My contract with my audience is if you come see me live or you watch my specials or my movies, it will be all I have to offer. I mean, 
there are books, articles, speeches, things that are written that go through multiple drafts and revisions. Many of them, right? Probably most of them we could use more. Yes. But five or 600 is not a normal number. And you can say it takes place over X number of years. Yeah. The kind of discipline it takes to go do it every night. And then again, to your point, like you were saying, I perform it, then I listen to it, then I take notes on it, yeah. then I take one thing out the next night. There's just a kind of rigor to that that I think is unusual by, by the standards of most. I mean, there are movies that take seven or eight years in process, but it's not like the person's shooting the movie for seven years or in post-production for seven years, taking two seconds out of the thing for seven years. That's an unusual degree of rigor, I would say. When I started out in my 20s, it was so superficial. I'm like so embarrassed of what my goals were because it was like, be famous. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, be popular. Uh, get laughs, be popular. And at a certain point in doing that, I had some degree of success where I could actually experience like, oh, that's not going to do it. Yeah. That's not enough. Yeah. That doesn't satiate me. And it, I don't think it, it's giving the audience enough. And so my sense is like, yeah, that's my process. My process, I put it in front of a lot of people. The full version, I've probably put in front of people like 150 times. Yeah. And I would say these comedy seller sets where I workshop like 10 to 20 minute pieces, yeah, that's probably hundreds, 500, 600 times. Yeah. But so that, far, so far. But also, and then I'm doing 20 at Steppenwolf in Chicago and 40 in Los Angeles. And then if I do it on or off Broadway, the last show I did 100 performances. <laughs> and you'll still be changing it. And I still make tweaks. Right. And again, what's your log line for The Old Man in the Pool? The Old Man in the Pool is about this moment in my life where I, I'm 43 now, and a few years ago I go to my doctor and he asked me to do the pulmonary test, yeah. and I blow into the thing and I, and I fail it. And he sends me a cardiologist, and he goes, you have a history of heart disease. I'm like, oh, well, dad had a heart attack at 56. His dad had a heart attack at 56. And it's like, all these bells are going off in my head, and I'm going like, oh, you know, this is going to end. Yeah. And it's sort of, how do I feel about this? Yeah. And what's funny about that? Yeah. And how can we savor this moment now and then it takes an unexpected turn? Yeah. So it's basically the log line is Mike Birbiglia, it could be a rap. It could be a rap. It could be a rap. Could, could be a rap about Mike Birbiglia and how I dealt with it. Could be a rap on Birbiglia. Yeah, yes. yeah, and it's always possibly a rap on everybody all the time. Yeah. I will say, it doesn't sound as funny as it is. It's very, very funny. funny. It's very funny. But the other you hear, <laughs> like, like wow, it's about, it's about me coming face-to-face with my mortality. It's yeah. like, well, Black Riot. There. It's got uh, but it turns out jokes. to be very funny. Yeah. You've seen it how many times? In how many versions? Five. Yeah. And bits and pieces. Yeah. I saw it from the index card in a field <laughs> in Connecticut. To... <laughs> Outdoor shows during the pandemic. What caught me off guard is, you know, every... She's still tweaking, but every show is worth the price of the ticket. Hmm. Yeah, And so it's like That's one of those amazing. things where I was like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Like, by the way, it's hard, a little hard for me because I am also comparing. And my dad will sometimes tell me not to do this. Hmm. My stuff is very, you know, comparatively ramshackle. But like, but you know, like comparatively ramshackle. In terms of like, <laughs> you know, phrase. This is a good turn of phrase. Like one of us is like, uh, you know. You can't, I understand that if you're like a recumbent otter, you can't measure yourself against a cheetah. Mm -hmm. But like, it really is like, I've only done things a certain way. And also like, I wasn't tactile or clear-sighted enough to, uh, 
to find good instruction and good practices early on in my solo show life because I got good. It was the first thing I'd ever, like I won an award in Edinburgh that started my career in 2014 mm. for a show called Millennial, which is about the sort of millennial cohort that I found myself in. It was before the word got annoying. Yeah. And, um, and so I, because of that reception, I was using some pretty sloppy habits <laughs> and because I was, you know, everyone's like, ah, oh, that's pretty good. I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to keep doing those sloppy habits. And now, sometimes when I watch a really good person in a really good process, I'm like, it could have been a good show or it could have been better. You know, it could have been like, I get, I get empirically that you can't like, that you have to grow and that you can't just be the thing immediately. But like, it's, it's really good, uh, the show, but he makes big changes. Like that's what surprises me. Well, like between show one and show five, the show is both very much the same and completely different. Like the ending will change. The, yeah, the, and part of the answer too, though, like why all the drafts? Like when I started out in my twenties, my dad was a neurologist. My mom was a nurse, and so like they sent me to Georgetown. It's like they didn't send me to Georgetown to become a comedian. So I had this inherent sense of like I am failing all the time. Every day I'm doing this. Yeah. And every day that I'm not wildly successful, I'm failing. And so I really had this sense of like, well, if I'm gonna do this, I have to treat it like a job. And so when I first moved to New York, I didn't even have the money to do this really. I rented an office. I was like 22 years old. I like rented an office and, and, and went there every day and did the nine to five. And then I did shows at night, of nine to five of myself, yeah, of yeah, my sure. own work and whatever. So, like, I think part of it's that. It's, like, this work ethic of, like, this is serious. This yes. is a serious job. Yeah. Well, the fact that we're to add up all the interviews I've ever done in my life, the hundreds of thousands of hours, hundreds of thousands, and I've never heard anybody compare themselves to a recumbent otter before. That's actually that will be what I remember from this interview. Man, the guy, she's like, yeah, I'm a recumbent otter. I can't compare myself to a cheetah. I'm like, but no, you can't. Mm. Um, but you also mm. probably shouldn't have started with a recumbent otter. I know. That's so funny. <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's like just a, 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 an image I'm not going to forget, uh, not long forget. I want to play two more things, and then we'll be done. We don't have to say much about them. I just want to actually get them in because I, I want to ask you one question about this. You just mentioned the millennial thing. So mm -hmm. let's play that. Alex Edelman, this is a you talking about millennials oh, in, in 2019 wow. oh, I love this on, on Comedy Central. How is any millennial ever going to own a home? How is any young person ever going to own a home? It's maybe hate old people. I see a few of you in here tonight. I hate you. Because every old person in a city like LA or New York or London is the same. They're like, my house is worth $2 million. But when I bought it in 1981, I paid 11 raspberries for it. <laughs> And every young person's like, I have nine roommates! <laughs> we each pay $11,000 a month. Although I missed the payment last month, he took a toe, I walk in a circle now. I'd like you to not use that tone that you use with the word raspberries ever again. It's like, that's I, very funny. Uh -huh. It's a thing that got into that That's a bad habit that I, you know, now find painful to watch. Yeah, so given where you are now and mm -hmm. what you think of how far, I know you will say, you know, there's still lots of work to do and still lots of improvement even on the show you're currently making. Do you look at that and say, I see that as part of a natural evolution and I'm growing, or do you look at that and kind of cringe? But, I only ask because you just said the thing about cringing. But, but by the way, I find it funny, but you know. No, 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 it's funny. And also there are certain jokes that I've done over the course of my life that have had resonance with people, even yeah. though the jokes are imperfect, that I really love. I hear from 
people about that joke mm-hmm. sure. almost every day. Sure. <laughs> yes. Like seriously, people write me about yeah. that joke. They go, hey, they want to tell me where they live and how much they pay. Like yeah. I have weirdly, uh, I have weirdly like, it's like, I live in Denver. I pay $2,100 for a one bedroom. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you're paying too much. I can find you a different one right now. But like, the thing is I did that show. It was a 10 p.m. taping after they had done a 7 p.m. taping and they were using the same audience. Yeah. And I was ninth on the lineup. I yeah. needed to be high energy for that audience to get them where they needed to be. I was opening for bigger comedians. So I was playing these huge venues, opening for them. And so my mannerisms were appropriate in big theaters and smaller arenas. And then I was doing my regular sets that any sort of comedian would be doing. And I still had my like stadium mannerisms. So they Mm. were grossly over-exaggerated, but that is what that joke needed in that show. So yeah. A joke before about Just For Us. I I still think it was just this, the Alex Edelman Jew show. Sure. Um, Oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) Alex Edelman, super Jew show. Anytime he says I'm a super Jew, Alex Edelman, that show. I joked about you doing that for a long time in the future, but what do you actually think? I mean, when I played that, I think, oh, you know, that's really funny. But it's not really what he's now doing. Do you ever imagine going back and doing things that are more like oh, that? Yeah. Is mean, that where you want to go back tw- in that direction? I mean, that's, and, that's not totally more... out of my repertoire, that joke, yeah. actually. Like, yeah, yeah, I bring yeah. it back every so often and fiddle with bits on the end of it and segue it into a bit about how we need right. younger politicians because of things like yeah. this. My comedy actually has been fairly political. I love comics that hunt big game. Right. It's like my next show, the show that I've, I've started to like take notes here and there and think about it and like... It might be about like Israel and Palestine. It might be about like all the powers on the third rail. Mm-hmm. And so like, uh, I don't know what I'm gonna do next, honestly. I, I'm still very much loving the show yeah. and changing the show and tweaking the show as, as well and trying to get it. I'm not gonna produce it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Show. <laughs> I just put that on the record right now. I, I just don't have any strong opinions about it. And I, I don't, I'm not here right now. Mike would like to make clear that on a variety of levels that I love you. All right. But I'm not with you. I'm not with you on that. All right. Sorry. So you do the one after, which is an intricate defense of Jeffrey Epstein. I've got uh, one of the Netanyahu nephews who would be happy to have right I take a sip of my water. I put it down. You're both gone. No, like, what the fuck is that? Like, Jesus. Man, I, I thought we already established that this was not a place for oh anyone safely to tread. Yeah. No, like, I like the third round. You know, like maybe abortion. How about you? You know what? There is something threading the needle. Sometimes someone goes, whose career do you want? I don't know how I feel about that question generally, but I love Stephen Fry's ability to be sort of like, I live in the gray space and I live in a space where it's more important to be effective than correct. And I live in a space where people should try to figure out problems instead of never talking about it because they're so they're so dangerous and I don't have the cachet for that right now but like maybe I can figure out how to like thread the needle I lived there for a while I have opinions that made me unpopular in rooms of of people with strong opinions on both sides so like maybe that's a good middle point they can hate me there is something that is interesting to me about those big conversations so I don't know well I look forward to seeing that (laughs) and you I feel like you're like in like the perfect place. You're like, you couldn't be in a better place than you are right now, right? Just when you do way too much stuff, you've got like the perfect career. You get to make the stuff you want to make. You get to address the kind of issue you want to address. You get to have these acting parts and these kind of cool movies. I know, you know, you've got some work coming up with some like super cool stuff. Like, yeah, yeah. No, could I, it be any better? Like it's like living the dream. I've seen Tom Hanks. I know. Uh, that's that's so what I was referring cool. to. Make a movie with Tom Hanks. Man named Otto, yeah. You know, I feel I'm very lucky. I'm very fortunate. I pursued a thing. Yeah. And I'm able to do it 
and people show up to see me do it, and I'll keep doing it until they stop showing up. Yeah. And that's a very fortunate position to be in. Yeah. I mean, just see, thinking about the old man in the pool, you've kind of bought yourself the freedom to go out and make the thing about mortality that like, I mean, you know, you've established right. a certain kind of commercial and artistic track record <laughs> right. to be able to go and make that. Right. Hey, I'm going to do a thing about like about my cancer and I go, oh, I'm going to die. And like, how do I, what have I learned from my brush with mortality? That's right. like, that's a. I've heard that. I don't know if you and I were talking about this with Paul Thomas Anderson. He made Boogie Nights. And then because of that, he got to make Magnolia, you know, which is the movie that like, how do you pitch that exactly? That's right. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it's so good. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I feel very lucky. The shows have done well. And so, yeah, I'm able to make this show that I'm very passionate about. And I mean, I'd like to think that this show, The Old Man in the Pool, is actually the most universal of any of my shows. So like my last show was the new yeah. one. And I had this inflection point. I posted about this on Instagram the other day because I performed at Princeton the other night the old man in the pool, and I performed the new one in Princeton in 2017 before it came to Broadway. Yeah. And in that show, it's all about my decision and my wife's decision to have a child. Yeah. I never wanted to have a child. And it's about the yeah. 180 of like, and I had a child, and I was right, and then also I was wrong. And that's the emotional part about it. And when I performed it at Princeton in 2017 at McCarter, I could see that when I talked about having children that there was like a glaze in their yeah, eyes. Yeah. It's like they couldn't yeah. find we a way are in. Children. Yeah. yeah. Couldn't find a way in. And I was like, no, no, no. I need there to be a way in. And so I created, if you watch the new one on Netflix, there's a metaphor that's the first four minutes of the show about having a couch. Yeah. And someday, you know, you you bring a couch in from the street and you're like, I love this couch. It's a metaphor for comfort and existence and domesticity. And that's how I start the show. And I start that way because I put it in front of college kids and they didn't get the kid thing. Yeah. But they understood a couch. With this show, it's so fundamentally about being alive that I actually think, it, who knows, but it might have the widest reach of my shows because it's just about being alive and that we could all go at any second. And it's got 175 jokes and it's a great night out. <laughs> it's a great you know night out. And you, and are you still ending in the way? Remember the, when I saw you, you had just started to end in a new way. Yeah, that's it's still there. With an, a way, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna, I won't. I'm not yeah, don't give away the ending, but I yeah, won't. it's a fun. But it's, it's, but it's powerful, not just fun. Oh, and thanks. It, and I remember that night, you were again in that mode of like, do you think that worked? And I was like, you could feel the audience. You know, you could feel a physical reaction to it in the Yeah, in the I love that. And that people, love leaning, the physical. That people leaning forward in their seats and kind of like having that like charge of electricity with the end of it. Again, I will not I will not spoil it. I had no idea there was any other ending ever previously. And you sat down, you're like, oh, we only started doing this like five days ago. Yeah, yeah. And we changed yeah. the ending of the show. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, you know, yeah, that's the, I, that's I, the, I the most when, fun uh, part. When, when the old man in the pool opens. Wait till Hemingway comes after me. You just got to. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you got to go see it. You guys are great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recap. Thanks again to Mike Berbiglia and Alex Edelman for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recap, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Pierre Benhamé engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender, our post-producer. And the one and only El Jefe, Marshall Isaac executive producer. 